Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Buddy Holly and the day the music died. Now let's get started with our story about Buddy Holly. In early February of 1959, musician Buddy Holly was in the midst of a 24-day tour of small Midwestern clubs called the Winter Dance Party. The tour featured Holly as the headliner with his own backing band of Waylon Jennings on bass, Tommy Alsup on guitar, and Carl Bunch on the drums. As was customary, the Winter Dance Party also featured other acts, including Dion and the Belmonts, J.P. Richardson, also known as the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens. The entire effort was the result of Holly deciding to leave his previous band, The Crickets, as well as his producer and manager, Norman Petty, and moved to New York. The split with the Crickets, Jerry Allison and Joe Malden, revolved around the two other Texas natives not wanting to relocate to New York. The problem with Buddy's manager and producer was more troubling. It was clear to Holly that Petty was both cutting himself into publishing credits that weren't deserved and with naively granted financial control was probably withholding royalties and payments that rightfully belonged to Holly and the other Crickets. Initially, Petty who had a tenuous agreement with Holly anyway, amicably agreed to relinquish management control, but subsequently responded to any request for cash by claiming that he needed to first complete a systematic audit of his records, payments, contracts, etc., before releasing any funds. After Holly retained an attorney, who quickly discovered that Petty had secretly deposited all royalties into his own agency bank account, it became apparent that any process to force Holly's former manager to pay up would be laborious and possibly unproductive. Holly, newly married with a pregnant wife, living in New York, and actually wanting to eventually return to his hometown of Lubbock, Texas, to build his own studio, had no choice but to get out on the road. The Winter Dance Party Tour was the result of this rather desperate need for money. Unfortunately, without management, Holly needed to rely on individuals that he had only previously worked with sporadically. Irvin Feld was an entertainment promoter who had put together tours for Holly in 1957 and 1958. As rock and roll was a relatively new phenomenon, much of Feld's execution involved trial and error. A New York City vantage point also gave Feld and his co-promoters the talent booking entity, the General Artists Corporation, a skewed perspective on the geography and reality of touring by bus in a pre-interstate America. After Feld decided on the acts that would accompany Holly as the headliner, 
GAC began to schedule tour dates beginning January 23, 1959, and ending February 15, 1959, 24 consecutive nights. Initially, there were some unscheduled days, but these gaps were eventually filled, including a February 2nd date in Clear Lake, Iowa, and a February 3rd date in Moorhead, Minnesota. Although both GAC and Feld had experience with these types of venues in the Midwest, most of their tours were conducted in the summer or early fall, the winter climate making such a grueling schedule even more formidable. In January, Holly and his band flew from Lubbock to New York, where they stayed at the Holly apartment in Greenwich Village with Buddy and his wife, Maria. From there, it was a train ride to Chicago, where all of the tour's participants were scheduled to assemble. A local GAC rep chartered a vehicle, which turned out to be little more than a glorified school bus. As the bus pulled out of Chicago and headed for the first stop on the tour, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, temperatures in the vicinity hit as low as 17 below, with a recent snowfall of 13 inches. The next state was in reasonably close Kenosha, Wisconsin, but subsequent shows required overnight bus trips ranging from two to 400 miles the route frequently crisscrossing and backtracking across Wisconsin, Iowa, and Minnesota in a practically nonsensical fashion. Even worse, there was no road crew. The musicians were responsible for loading out their own equipment, frequently only hours before a scheduled appearance in weather that continued to be extreme. Inevitably, the tour bus broke down in the middle of the night between Duluth, Minnesota, and Green Bay, Wisconsin, in 20 below zero temperatures. It was so cold and the performers were stuck for so long that Buddy Holly's drummer, Carl Bunch, was taken directly to the nearest hospital to be treated for a severe frostbite of his feet. The next day's show in Appleton, Wisconsin, was canceled, and with great difficulty, the tour successfully performed that night, February 1st, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. The next morning, the musicians woke up to 20 below zero temperatures and a 340-mile bus ride to the next stop for the winter dance party, Clear Lake, Iowa, arriving at 6 p.m. only two hours before showtime. Along the way, Buddy Holly was deeply angered by a call to his attorney, who informed him that Norman Petty was becoming even more resistant to resolving their dispute. Disgusted by the call, the bus situation, his lack of clean clothes, and no place to do laundry after hours in Clear Lake, Holly was determined to avoid another lengthy bus ride after the show. He spoke with Carol Anderson, the manager of the Surf Ballroom, that night's venue, about the possibility of chartering a plane to Fargo, North Dakota, just across the state line from the February 3rd gig at Moorhead, Minnesota. While the bands played, Anderson got a hold of a local flying service who agreed to fly three of the performers to Fargo after the show. Following some back and forth and even a little rank pulling, it was decided that three of the headliners, Holly, Richardson, and Valens, would fly to Fargo. After the show, Anderson drove his station wagon with the three musicians to the Mason City, Iowa airport where their charter awaited. He, Jerry Dwyer, the owner of the flight service, and the 21-year-old pilot, Roger Peterson, interacted with the musicians for a few minutes, and then luggage was loaded, and Buddy Holly, the last passenger, got in, sat down in the front seat next to the pilot, and shut the door. 
Moments later, Peterson began to taxi down the runway. Anderson and Dwyer watched as the plane took off, normally into a cold but clear night. The club manager then turned away and headed for his station wagon. It was the end of a long day, but neither Anderson or Dwyer had any idea that something was about to occur. And for both of them, Clear Lake, and even this entire region of the state of Iowa, nothing would ever be the same. Charles Harden Holly was born in Lubbock, Texas, on September 7, 1936. The E in his surname would be dropped for when Decca Records misspelled Holly on one of his first recording contracts. Nicknamed Buddy by his mother, as she considered Charles too formal, he was the youngest of four siblings. The family was Baptist and deeply religious, attending church routinely, but singing hymns from an early age probably developed Buddy's interest in music. Despite Lubbock's location in the heart of the Bible Belt, Holly was also intrigued by country and rhythm and blues, popular tunes that were available via radio stations from larger Midwestern outlets. By the seventh grade, he was playing with another junior high school student, Bob Montgomery, in a duet called Buddy and Bob, mostly country music covers of artists like Hank Williams. The act became a popular Lubbock staple, appearing at high schools, clubs, and even on local radio. Buddy and Bob added a bass player, Larry Wellborn, and later a drummer, Jerry Allison. At age 15, Holly added something else. Plagued by poor vision, even as a small child, he was first diagnosed with myopia at age 15. His optometrist, a doctor named J. Davis Armstead, designated his vision officially as 20 over 800. And aware that Holly appeared in front of live audiences, prescribed the most unobtrusive clear frames available. Still, it was not a fashionable look for a supposedly cool musician, and Holly tried everything else, including practically prehistoric contact lenses that fogged up the necessary solution blinding him during performances. Eventually, inspired by the comedian Phil Silvers, whose 1955 sitcom character Sergeant Bilko sported jaunty, thick, black-framed eyeglasses, Armstead spotted an even more pronounced version of this style while in Mexico City. Made by a Mexican company, he brought a pair back, which went perfectly with Holly's angular features. When Holly moved to New York, he remained so fond of this design and look that he continued to order the same Mexican eyeglass frame through a New York City optometrist. By 1955, Buddy, Bob, and the rest of the quartet were popular enough to warm up for the various national acts that appeared in various Lubbock venues, including Bill Haley and the Comets, Marty Robbins, and even Elvis Presley. Probably one of the most important influences on Holly's career was on January 2nd, 1955, when Presley appeared at Lubbock's Fair Park Coliseum. Buddy, as well as the hundreds of other teenagers, were mesmerized by something they had never seen, something called rock and roll. After his own observation, Holly moved on from performing versions of staid, traditional country, ballad, and bluegrass American music to perfect his own unique representation of this new style. On February 13th, when Elvis returned to perform at the same venue, Buddy and Bob were one of the warm-up bands. Throughout 1955, Elvis performed in Lubbock on several occasions, 
with Holly's quartet typically on the same bill. One of the reasons the group included a drummer was Presley's decision to fully jettison country and embrace rock and roll by adding his own drummer, DJ Fontana. Elvis spent more than a few post-show nights hanging out with Buddy and friends in Lubbock. These local appearances worked out for Buddy when, after appearing on successive dates with Bill Haley and Elvis, as well as with another newcomer named Johnny Cash, a Nashville music manager, Eddie Crandall, decided that Holly might have some potential. He got in touch with several national record company outposts in Nashville, including Decca A&R head Paul Cohen. Both Columbia and Decca were desperate to discover and cultivate talent to match the groundbreaking signing of Elvis Presley to RCA from Sam Phillips' Memphis-based Sun Records. Cohen offered Holly a recording contract, but little else. It was also made clear that Decca had no interest in Bob Montgomery or anyone else other than Buddy Holly. Montgomery was gracious enough to step aside, and Buddy, convinced that he was headed for the big time, borrowed $1,000 from his brother Larry for a flashier wardrobe and, most importantly, a state-of-the-art Fender Stratocaster guitar. He got two other musicians from Lubbock to be his backup band, Sonny Curtis and Don Guest, and Buddy borrowed the family Oldsmobile for the trek to Nashville. When he got there, he was in for a rude awakening. First, he was told by session producer Owen Bradley that his backup band wasn't good enough for a professional recording and would be supplemented by Decca Studio musicians. Second, much of the demo material he submitted was supplanted by material selected by Cohen. Third, Buddy was told that recording him on his Strat was just not the way it was done. He was to focus on vocals only. And most importantly, Bradley, although an experienced record producer, had little interest or experience with the emerging rock sound. Like Decca, he was familiar with country and didn't really know what to even make of Buddy's material. Four songs were quickly produced in a workmanlike session. The song Blue Days, Black Nights, selected as the A-side release of Holly's first single. It got pegged as country. Decca did nothing to promote the record, and it predictably stiffed. At least the record company did provide some touring opportunities to regional locations, but the exposure did nothing for Holly's record or visibility. A second session with Owen Bradley produced several songs, including That'll Be the Day, written with Jerry Allison in about 30 minutes. The song's title came from John Wayne's character in the film The Searchers, who continually repeats the same phrase. The second session was so unproductive that Buddy spent the summer of 1956 working construction contracting with his brother and father and was forced to watch his buddy Elvis break out in September on The Ed Sullivan Show. Things got worse in November. During a third recording session at DECA, hostility between Cohen and Holly became overt enough for the A&R executive to declare that Holly didn't have a rock and roll voice and badmouthed him internally as the worst no talent he had ever worked with. 1957 began with Buddy getting a predictable release from his DECA contract. If you were out of Lubbock, Texas in 1957 and had just been dropped from a major label, there wasn't much of a plan B. The best Buddy could come up with was heading to Clovis, New Mexico and the Norman Petty studio to pay for his own demo and hoped to interest a regional industry professional, in this case Norman Petty, 
in getting interested in representing Holly. Norman Petty was one of the many small-time independents that operated on the fringes of 1950s rock and roll. Less successful than the legendary Sam Phillips of Memphis's Sun Records, who discovered Elvis, Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash, and Jerry Lee Lewis, Petty still had a reputation for recognizing performers that he plugged either to record companies or radio stations. But in early 1957, he also was still looking to get involved with talent that would translate into national success. That's why when Buddy Holly returned to Petty's studio in January of 1957 and cut a demo, Norman recognized that Holly had greatly evolved. He told Buddy to get some material together, polish it up, and come back in February, and they would seriously concentrate on developing a single, exactly the result Holly was looking for. When he returned to Clovis on February 24th, Buddy not only had three other backing musicians, Larry Wellborn, Jerry Allison, and Nicky Sullivan, he also had Gary and Ramona Tollett as backup singers. Because Petty's studio was close to a busy street with daytime noisy truck traffic, recording didn't begin until after office hours. Petty wanted I'm Looking for Someone to Love to be the A-side of a single, and when that was arduously completed over many hours at 3 a.m., it then took only four takes to record That'll Be the Day. Subsequently, Norman Petty claimed to have greatly influenced this session. Gary Tollett maintained that Buddy already had the arrangements down, and all Petty did was arrange the microphones. Nevertheless, Petty then executed two of the more audacious moves in the history of rock and roll skullduggery. The first revolved around songwriting and publishing credits. Petty maintained that because he had provided the free use of his studio, had musical connections in New York, and was a known quantity in the business, his name should appear on the record as one of the songwriters. A known quantity, he explained, is better than some unknown kids from West Texas. He also offered to publish the music through his own Norvajack Publishing Company, spinning this as a kind of business benefit, explaining that they wouldn't have to worry about a thing. He didn't emphasize that this would entitle him to 50% of the publishing revenues, only that this was how the business worked. Buddy Holly was so thrilled that anyone would try to help him get somewhere that he didn't give it a second thought. Holly was business savvy enough to remember and understand that his previous deal with Decca forbade him for five years to use any of the songs recorded during his tenure there. That included That'll Be the Day. Petty's second utterly brazen move to get around this was to suggest recording this with the name, as yet still undetermined, of a band. A couple of days later, because of their familiarity with another group known as the Spiders, Holly and Jerry Allison started to consider other insect names, actually considering the Beatles with a double E before settling on the Crickets. True to his word, Norman Petty did immediately attempt to get a deal done with some of the major labels in New York. When he got nowhere with Roulette, who he had done business with, and Columbia, who emphatically dismissed the record, he decided to leverage any contacts in the music publishing world that he had. Murray Deutsch at Pierce Southern Music, who didn't particularly like Petty and didn't typically get involved with rock and roll, was surprisingly enthusiastic about That'll Be the Day. Deutsch was involved early with one of rock and roll's foundational groups, the Platters, and had some clout in the business. 
Hilariously, the only label he could get interested was Carl, a subsidiary of DECA. Neither Deutsch or Carl's A&R head, Bob Thiel, had any inkling of the song's past connection to DECA, and Thiel even played the song to a room full of DECA higher-ups who unanimously disliked it. Luckily, Paul Cohen was not involved. Since Carl featured artists like Debbie Reynolds and Lawrence Welk, Thiel suggested that the song be issued in a limited release on the even smaller Brunswick label, and the higher-ups agreed, not really caring at that point. Petty sold him two songs for a paltry $100 advance. By then, the crickets consisted of a new edition when Larry Wellborn dropped out and was replaced by Joe Malden, chiefly because Malden owned his own bass. Petty had the three crickets, Allison, Sullivan, and Malden, sign the contract, but intentionally left out Buddy so that nobody at DECA would be the wiser. Eventually, Norman Petty figured out another ingenious way of getting Thiel on board with DECA to forget about the five-year clause. He knew that Buddy was in the process of writing additional material with hit potential, and he actually used signing Buddy as a solo artist as a strength and not a weakness. When presented with one of Holly's next songs, Words of Love, Thiel realized that he had the potential for a dual identity for the same artist. A DJ could play a cricket song and then follow it up with a Buddy Holly song from a different label, in this case, Carl Records. Even the DJ might not even realize that he was in effect playing the same artist. Initially, some DECA executives were upset about violation of the five-year clause to the point of considering a lawsuit, but Thiel argued that it would be impossible for the record company to sue because Holly had essentially re-delivered material to DECA itself. After some internal discussion, he was permitted to proceed. That'll Be the Day was released on May 27, 1957. At the time, Buddy Holly was working with his brother installing ceramic tile on a newly constructed building in Lubbock. That's not to say that Buddy was not busy in the recording studio. By the time of his first song's release, he had already written and recorded many new songs, including the eventual hits Every Day, Not Fade Away, Words of Love, and Maybe Baby. On June 30th, Holly and the Crickets assembled in Clovis for a lengthy session attempting to record a song originally entitled Cindy Lou, the combination of his niece and sister's first name. But the phrasing didn't really work, and the session went nowhere until Jerry Allison suggested that Buddy substitute the name Peggy Sue, the name of a girl he was dating and looking to impress. Peggy Sue Garin was a high school junior at Lubbock High, who was about to become immortalized in a manner that no one could have possibly anticipated. Norman Petty helped by turning on and off an echo chamber effect during recording that gave the drumbeat to the song a unique sound and rhythm. By the time they recorded Peggy Sue, the Cricket's That'll Be the Day had sold 50,000 copies, a respectable figure that prompted Bob Thiel to fly the band into New York to meet the executives at DECA and its Brunswick and Carl subsidiaries. It also prompted one of the more unusual tours in the history of rock and roll. Because there was so little publicity concerning the crickets, including a dearth of photographs, and there also was another black band by the same name, the crickets wound up on a national tour supporting Clyde McFadder of former Drifters fame. Despite their awareness that they would be the only white band on the card and would appear in inner-city locations, 
in front of universally black audience. And the crickets went for it, despite some initial incredulity at the sight of four out-of-place white Bible Belt Texans dressed in square suits. Audiences quickly responded. Shows in Baltimore and Washington at least generated a popular response. But when the crickets got to the famed Apollo Theater in Harlem on August 16th, booked for six nights, there was initially a much different reaction, especially because the audience was expecting the black band known as the crickets. For the first two shows, the typically rowdy Apollo crowd actually jeered and booed until Holly decided to begin the third night with Bo Diddley material and wild theatrics on stage, which eventually endeared the band to the audience. Only days before, That'll Be the Day entered the Billboard chart at number 65. Two other appearances helped the Crickets' momentum in the late summer of 1957. A spot on the new television phenomenon, American Bandstand, hosted by Dick Clark, gave the band visibility on one of the medium's most popular programs. Subsequently, the Crickets were added to Alan Freed's Holiday of Stars presentation at Brooklyn's Paramount Theater. Freed, a disc jockey who played music that he called rock and roll, is credited with coining the term and popularizing the sound starting in the late 40s. He was also a major practitioner of various forms of payola, including taking songwriting credits in exchange for airplay and accepting cash and gifts for airplay business practices that eventually got him a federal indictment and banishment from the industry. But in 1957, he was a rock and roll kingmaker, subsidizing his income by promoting regular concerts that featured as many as 20 acts on a single bill, each act playing only a few hits before a movie was exhibited and then the theater cleared for the next admission. These shows started at 11 a.m. and went until early morning the acts all receiving union scale to perform. With at least five and sometimes seven shows in a day, the Crickets made almost 30 appearances in a week. This for approximately $1,000 for the seven days split four ways. One week was enough for the Crickets, who after that got involved with the biggest show of stars of 1957, a collaboration put together by Irvin Feld of the General Artists Corporation. This was a big-time tour that featured some of the most popular artists of the time period, including Chuck Berry, the Everly Brothers, Fats Domino, the Drifters, Paul Anka, and many others. Again, the pay wasn't much, but the Crickets got a chance to showcase a few of their hits in cities across the U.S. and Canada on a two-month international tour. Luckily, Buddy, who had just turned 21, and the Crickets, like Jerry Allison, who was 18, were young enough to be able to tolerate the long bus rides between shows, frequently unable to check into a hotel room, spending the entire night traveling hundreds of miles. All of this exposure and hard work paid off. On September 23, 1957, That'll Be the Day hit number one on Billboard's rock chart. Peggy Sue was released only a few days earlier and, not surprisingly, was also taking off. With the conclusion of their Show of Stars tour, the Crickets returned to New York and the ultimate booking on November 1, 1957, an appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. Despite the sensational appearance of Elvis Presley the year before, Sullivan was still privately hostile to rock and roll, 
and considered it a fad that would eventually fade. After performing That'll Be the Day and Peggy Sue, Holly exchanged banter with Sullivan, who commented on the singer's hometown as if the band were a bunch of country bumpkins. Holly only responded politely, shaking Sullivan's hand after this brief interlude. From these dramatic heights, the crickets then returned to Lubbock, Nicky Sullivan immediately quitting the crickets upon their return. Sullivan maintained that the grueling rock road life wasn't for him, but in truth, he and Jerry Allison did not get along, and Buddy was tight with Allison, a friend from childhood. Subsequently, Sullivan landed some music contracts on his own, but didn't last long, eventually getting a position with Sony Electronics. However, having performed on 27 of the 32 recorded cricket songs, Sullivan eventually wound up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Nicky also tried to nail down Norman Petty for a slice of royalties that certainly should have been earned from at least one song that was a number one hit. Buddy insisting that each cricket was entitled to a quarter share of any royalties due to the band. Petty was typically evasive, and even when Sullivan's father got involved, the producer was unyielding, claiming the books were being audited and continually putting off any attempt at an actual fiscal accounting. Sullivan finally agreed to a one-time $1,000 payment for That'll Be the Day and a third share of ensuing publishing royalties on I'm Gonna Love You Too. Petty, who kept a Bible on his desk and asked all of his musicians to tithe 10% of their royalties to their respective churches, even kept those deductions for himself. Initially, the remaining crickets considered some other Lubbock acquaintances as a replacement for Nicky Sullivan, but ultimately decided to keep their identity as a trio. Norman Petty, perhaps to convince Buddy that he was looking out for his best interests, persuaded him to subsequently receive 50% of any royalties paid to the band. Although Buddy agreed to the arrangement, it was a complete sham because any royalty payments were deposited by Petty into his own account, the producer paying the band's day-to-day -day expenses and rarely dispersing any actual formal royalty or performance payments other than in the form of pocket money. Certainly, some of the expenditures that Petty took care of included getting Buddy's teeth capped, and a down payment for a two-door Impala Coupe, pink, of course. There were certainly reasons to be optimistic. By December, Peggy Sue hit number three under Buddy's name and the Crickets, oh boy, climbing to an eventual number 10 position. Petty and Thiel's dual release strategy working like a charm. The band also returned to New York for another Alan Freed extravaganza, playing with the Everly Brothers, Paul Anka, Danny and the Juniors, and a newcomer named Jerry Lee Lewis. This was followed up by another appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show on January 26, 1958. Sullivan turning down their amps, but still unable to dent the audience's enthusiasm. In less than a year, Buddy Holly had transformed himself from Decca Castoff into one of the hottest names in the music industry. Indicative of their growing international fame, the Crickets left New York after the Sullivan Show appearance and flew to Honolulu to join a Paul Anka, Jerry Lee Lewis tour that then proceeded to Australia. This frantic pace continued, the band returning from down under to Lubbock for a few days and some recording in Clovis, but it was back on the road again by the end of February, this time to Great Britain. Today, such a prominent act would not have continued with such a demanding schedule. 
But Buddy's success, despite initial failure, was essentially an overnight phenomenon. And much like rock and roll itself, no one had any idea how long it would last. Indicative of Buddy's status as a true pioneer, he and his bandmates flew tourists to London on BOAC. Despite the BBC officially banning rock and roll after a previous Bill Haley of the Comets tour caused a violent riot, Holly was even more popular in Britain than he was in the U.S. But the grade organization, the entertainment entity run by impresario Lou Grade, put together a hilariously incongruous set of musicians, leaving the crickets as the only rock act on the bill. Such entities as the Ronnie Keene Orchestra, playing big band numbers, like In the Mood and When the Saints Go Marching In, were greeted politely, but when the headlining crickets were announced, the crowd clearly there to see rock and roll erupted. Keene later commented that it was at this moment he realized that his music career was over. But unlike Bill Haley, whose concerts were more of a happening, used to let off juvenile steam, these audiences were much more into the music, and no riots ensued. Only positive enthusiasm, a development even local media noticed. An appearance on the British Ed Sullivan equivalent, Sunday Night at the Palladium, followed several London-area performances. Two impressionable viewers who tuned in in Liverpool, England, were John Lennon and Paul McCartney, already major fans. Starting March 1st, Holly and the Crickets played dates for 25 consecutive nights throughout Great Britain. The initial thrill of wildly responsive audiences, eventually worn thin by the lengthy bus trips, shabby lodgings, and perpetually chilly and rainy British March weather. Only three days after returning from the UK, the Crickets were back at the Paramount Theatre in Brooklyn and Alan Freed's Big Beat Show, once again with the likes of Chuck Berry, a now ascendant Jerry Lee Lewis, and Danny and the Juniors, whose At the Hop would be the biggest song of 1958. After the New York shows, six weeks of dates of the East and Midwest followed, the good news that much of the travel was conducted via airplane, the bad news that the aircraft involved were DC-3s rattling buckets of bolts that accentuated any turbulence and made even the calmest flight a white-knuckle affair. With Jerry Lee Lewis setting his piano on fire, Chuck Berry's duck-walking theatrics, and novelty act Screamin' Jay Hawkins beginning his set by emerging from a coffin, the crickets were practically stayed by comparison, but just as popular as any of the other acts on the tour. That this tour would end controversially and prematurely had nothing to do with them. On May 3rd, it hit Boston, playing in front of 5,000 mostly teenage patrons at the Boston Arena. Although 20 city police were present, the show went smoothly until Jerry Lee Lewis's rambunctious set got the audience dancing in the aisles. Repeatedly, the police would turn up the house lights and halt the show until the aisles were cleared. Freed initially cooperated as the MC by asking the audience to sit down, but finally during Chuck Berry's set, the exasperated DJ responded to another interruption with the comment, it looks like the police in Boston don't want you kids to have any fun. Pandemonium ensued, first inside the arena where chairs were thrown, and then outside on the surrounding streets where fighting and vandalism ensued. Mayor John Hines banned any future such shows, and cities remaining on the tour followed suit. 
Alan Freed was eventually indicted for inciting a riot and was fired from New York radio station WINS. However, only two arrests occurred, and Freed's charges were eventually dropped. Unfortunately for the DJ, despite a new job at WABC, within a year he would be caught up in the payola scandal and blackballed from all but the most remote radio outposts. He died in 1965 of cirrhosis of the liver, aged 43. The Crickets staged their own mini-rebellion on their way home to Lubbock. Flush with cash from their tour receipts, the band members decided to head to Dallas, where they bought motorcycles with what they deemed their own money. Normally, any receipts were supposed to be dutifully turned into Norman Petty. But this arrangement was already wearing thin. Buddy also paid back his brother the $1,000 he borrowed previously, as well as a donation to his local church to help with the renovation. Accompanied by the Crickets and a new rhythm guitarist, Tommy Alsup, Buddy quickly headed back to Clovis to record several songs, including the memorable It's So Easy. Despite his international fame, neither Lubbock or Clovis took much official notice of Buddy, and he was able to relax and walk the streets without attracting attention, a welcome respite after months of nonstop touring. It was not until the end of June that Buddy got back to work, heading for New York and a recording session at Decca's Studios. Whenever they were in the city, the Crickets made a point of stopping in on Murray Deutsch at Pier Southern Music acknowledging Deutsch's initial help in getting their careers off the ground. On this particular June visit, Buddy met the company receptionist, Maria Elena Santiago, a 25-year-old Puerto Rican whose high-powered aunt, Provi Garcia, ran Pierce Southern's Latin American division. Despite her age, when Buddy asked her to have dinner, she responded by saying she would have to check with her aunt, who she lived with and who reluctantly agreed. Over dinner at P.J. Clark's, Buddy actually asked Maria to marry him, persisting the next day by going to Aunt Provy's apartment and reiterating his intent. Most likely, Buddy was not only smitten by the extremely attractive Maria, but also in competition with Jerry Allison, who was now engaged to the eponymous Peggy Sue Guerin. His brother Larry commented, he was just looking to get married anyway, anyhow. Nevertheless, Buddy's parents flew to New York to meet their future daughter-in-law, and everybody in Buddy's orbit was happy and pleased for the two of them, with one predictable exception, Norman Petty. Petty told Buddy that he was making the worst mistake of his life and that girls only bought the records of performers that they could fantasize about, and a wife would only be an impediment either nagging him while with him on tour or nagging him to come home if he wasn't. Petty must have realized that Maria was especially threatening to his business relationship with the Crickets, as her aunt could easily verify what royalties to the penny Pierce Southern had already paid out. Buddy already was suspicious of Petty's financial management, so his manager's continual bad-mouthing of Maria as a loose woman who slept with other musicians probably only served to make him more determined. But he was so cash-poor and dependent that he had to ask Petty for the money to buy an engagement ring. Financially strapped, Holly then embarked on a July 4, 1958 summer dance party put together by GAC. But unlike anything the Crickets had ever attempted... They would travel from town to town in Buddy's latest vehicle, a powder blue Lincoln, with the warm-up act Tommy Alsup and a three-man swing band following in a station wagon. 
Although the weather was reasonable, the venues were mostly ballrooms in spots like Angola, Indiana, and Waterloo, Iowa, a bit of a come-down from Ed Sullivan and the Palladium. But the musicians soldiered on, by now heartened by their newfound resolve to immediately split any receipts among themselves, foregoing the usual transfer to Norman Petty. Frequently having several thousand dollars in his glove compartment or in a small kit bag he took everywhere, but he also began carrying a twenty-two pistol as a precaution. When this nine-day tour ended in late July, Jerry Allison and Peggy Sue Guerin took it upon themselves to elope, getting married by one of Jerry's minister relatives. Peggy Sue was a Roman Catholic, and her parents were throwing up all sorts of barriers over Jerry's Baptist affiliation until the couple just decided to get on with it. Ever competitive, Buddy scheduled his own marriage and his parents Ello and Ella's living room on August 15th. Maria was supposed to be chaperoned by her aunt, but eventually flew to Lubbock by herself. However, it all remained on the up and up as she was assigned her own room until her wedding day. The small wedding was attended by a few family members and the crickets, including the newly wedded Mrs. Allison. Norman Petty and his wife Vi were not present, a prophetic absence. Buddy and Maria then double honeymooned with Jerry and Peggy Sue in Acapulco, a trip that was diminished by Peggy Sue and Maria not getting along from second one. By the end of the honeymoon, Maria was eating in a room by herself. The Hollies then returned to New York, flush with royalty payments totaling over $18,000 from Pierce Southern, Petty probably figuring that he couldn't withhold that money because Maria would find out from her aunt. The newlyweds rented a stylish corner apartment in Greenwich Village for $1,1959 a month. Buddy was a spendthrift who developed a taste for nice things, and it wasn't long before the cash was dwindling. In October, he spent 16 days on the road with another Alan Freed-promoted show, this time an expanded lineup that included Tommy Alsup on lead guitar and male backup vocalists that were used in the studio on the single It's So Easy. Although Buddy brought Maria along and encouraged Jerry Allison to bring his wife, Peggy Sue stayed in Lubbock. At least Maria was not subjected to bus rides, riding with Buddy in his latest automobile, a Cadillac 60 Special. The other band members traveled in the all-purpose Petty-owned station wagon. When the tour started, Maria didn't even know how to drive. By the end of it, she was behind the wheel while Buddy slept in the front seat. She also got to wash his laundry, eat the lousy food that was at least one cause of Holly's incipient stomach ulcer, and help set up the musical equipment as roadies were still non-existent. The glamour of rock and roll wore off very quickly. Maria and Buddy also spent a lot of time on the road discussing his and their future, business and otherwise. After the tour ended, Maria then accompanied Buddy to Decca's recording studio in New York for a session that included orchestral arrangements and which produced the monumental It Doesn't Matter Anymore and the radically groundbreaking for Buddy, True Love Ways. On October 28th, the Crickets made another American bandstand appearance, the group lip-syncing It's So Easy. It was after this performance that the Crickets were supposed to implement their plan to fire Norman Petty, a direction that first germinated during the most recent tour. They would also demand any royalties owed and continue to record together on Buddy's Prism label that was in the initial stages of construction. 
Jerry Allison and Joe Malden would fly home and Buddy would drive from New York and meet up a few days later. Unfortunately, in the interim, the two crickets went to Clovis without Buddy and divulged their intent to set out in a new direction. Petty predictably talked them out of it, promising them that he would continue to record them with a new lead vocalist who might not be as good as Buddy, but still adequate enough, and that New York was no place for them long term, and even hinted that collecting any existing royalties without a management deal in place would be complicated. Allison and Malden were still literal teenagers, easily persuaded that sticking with someone as seemingly caring and loyal as Norman Petty was in their best interest. By the time Buddy Holly got to Lubbock, his family had already heard that the two crickets were now back under Norman Petty's thumb. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Buddy Holly. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Rave On by Philip Norman, Hey Buddy by Gary Moore, and The Day the Music Died by Larry Lemer. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.